Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're continuing on in our series in this letter. We're going to pick up with uh, the 12th verse. And as you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. We have sought to give you praise today. And we we pray that you would receive all of that. And now we need to hear from you again. From your word. From that which you revealed. Will you illumine our hearts our minds, will you enable us to come into conformity with your will? And will you bring your comfort from your word? And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. So I believe that in this room, there are four kinds of people. I'm sure they can be divided up in a lot of different ways, but let me explain. There are those who are Christians and they know it. There are those who are not Christians and know it. And there are those who are not Christians but think they are. And there are Christians that aren't sure of their faith. Now, John's purpose in in writing this, this letter is as much to confirm the right assurance of salvation... For those who need it, who need to just be assured, yes, you, you believe and, and here's why. And, and here are tests that you can do so you know you believe. That's one aspect of why he's writing, but 
also, he wants to rob the counterfeit of false assurance. Those who really don't know the Lord, he wants them to know that they aren't in Christ and that they should not have a false assurance. In the list I just gave you, those who think they are Christians, but they aren't. Now, in our society, because of lawsuits and and liability and so on, there is a tendency to, uh, to state the obvious. Let me give you some examples. Uh, you, you open up, anybody here on medicine? Anybody take any medicine here in this room? Okay. Well, you, you open up, open up the, the medicine, and in there you see the pills or the capsules, and there's also a little packet in there, um, to, I guess, keep the moisture out and so on. And inevitably, it says something like, do not swallow, right? <laughs> and I don't know, I've never been tempted to, but especially when I read that, I think, oh, yeah, okay, I better not swallow that. Or you, you open a package of bacon bits, and again, there's that little packet, and it says, do not eat, you know, you're going for bacon bits and it's telling you, but don't eat this little blue, blue packet thing. Or at McDonald's coffee, you go and order coffee and on the cup it says, contents hot. <laughs> and, you know, I don't ever say this out loud, but I always think that's why I ordered hot coffee. <laughs> but thanks for, for letting me know. Uh, I was... I was in um, a car, uh, one of the newer cars, and the air, on the airbag compartment, it said this, in case of collision, do not place face in front of airbag. <laughs> now, you're going to start, since I've said these things, you're going to start seeing those everywhere, those kinds of things. Uh, and and it, it might seem a little silly when you kind of string them all together. They're there for, for reasons. But, you know, there, there is a place for stating the obvious. And, and that's what we see John do here. John is about to make six what should be obvious statements to the church. And I want you to think of these words as words of comfort for the whole church. Uh, John has and he is going to be saying some hard things to people that are, are reading this letter. But here he pauses and he speaks to them in a kind and gentle and uses comforting Words. So let's take a look at, at this, starting with verse 12 again. He starts out, I'm writing to you, little children. Now, we might immediately think this is talking about new believers or those that are younger chronologically. 
And I actually, I, I look back and uh, I, I keep my notes from previous teachings and so on. I look back from when I had taught through First John before, and I've actually changed my mind uh, on this. I've, I've taught this this way uh, a, a number of years ago, that it was the new believer, it was the, you know, or the chronologically younger. And uh, some commentators argue uh, that that's the case. Uh, but let me tell you why I, I changed my mind. Five other times in the letter, he calls this same group of people children, my children, or my little children. And he's not using that in the sense of them being new believers and so on, but he's using it in the sense of an, an affectionate address to them. Remember, he's up in uh, 90 or or so in terms of years. And we had already talked about how he used that term in an affectionate way. John Piper thinks it might have gone something like this. And I think this is plausible. Uh, Piper says he thinks that, that maybe John again here, he was going to uh, address the church and he said, my little children. And then he thought, you know what, I need to acknowledge those who are more mature in the faith. And then he says, fathers. And then he might have thought, you know what, I also want to address those that are right in the middle of the battle, that maybe aren't as mature in the faith, but they're, they're there, they're, they're in that battle. And then he says, young men. So, I'm actually going to take that tack that I think when he says my little children is kind of an umbrella phrase and he's speaking to the whole church. Now, the bottom line is it doesn't really matter. You can choose whichever way you want, but I just wanted to explain why I'm going in that direction. So he begins by reminding this group of believers, in my view, all believers of what they need to remember Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So he, he goes back and he states what for any believer should be the most basic thing, should be the obvious statement for uh, the believer, the basic of the gospel. Forgiveness because of Christ. But I want us to take note here and, and be clear on this. John does not say the Christian life is one who is seeking forgiveness or hopes to be forgiven at some point. He says, our sins have been forgiven. And he's reminding them of that. Now, when? Well, ultimately... At the cross, they were paid for. But chosen in him before the foundations of the world. How beautiful. But he says, yes, I want to I remind you, your sins are forgiven. 
Do we still repent and ask forgiveness? Well, yes, he's already instructed them in that way. But he's saying, but you, you are a people who are a forgiven people. And he doesn't want them to doubt that. He doesn't, and in the providence of God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is preserved for us. He doesn't want us to forget that. We are a forgiven people. And then there's another basic of the gospel that John wants to remind them of. Verse 13, the last part. I write to you, little children, because you know the Father. A relationship with the Father through Christ. So what's that relationship like? Paul loved to talk about what that relationship is really like. Over in Galatians 4, verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's what that relationship is like. So John here, as he's taking a little parentheses kind of and and giving them these basics and reminding them of the, the great comfort they should have in him. Romans 8, 15 For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there it is. We are children of the living God. You're forgiven. And what that means is that you're in relationship with the Father by trusting in his Son, Jesus Christ. So he starts with this basic. And then he goes on to speak to the fathers. Verse 13 and 14, the first part of each of those. Uh, He speaks to the, the spiritually, what I'd call the spiritually adult in the congregation. Now, We have to address this. Why does he say fathers and then later young men? Why doesn't he say fathers and mothers or young men and young women? Well, John's not from our time. Now, this is accurate. It's a generic term. But in our time, I just heard this yesterday, uh, that they are going to change the X-Men to the X-People. Did you hear that? Okay. So that's the time we live in. So the tendency is for us to say, oh, man, is, you know, was he a misogynist? What's, what's the, the deal here? Why does he just say, you know, do this with with fathers and and young men. But uh, while we try to use inclusive language, he's speaking to it in a generic way to all the church. Remember, the umbrella term, and then he speaks to the older, and then uh, the more mature especially, and then to those in the next category, men, women, youth, and children. 
So remember, he, he had already said that they received forgiveness and fellowship with the Father. But for some, that was a long time ago. And for, for those who he's calling fathers. So it's around 90 AD when this is written. So there could be those that were reading this who had been believers for decades at this point. You don't see that in the, you know, in the earlier writings in the New Testament, but this is a, one of the later writings, a late writing. Um, so they could have been believers for a long time. These had progressed into a deep commitment with the Lord, a deep communion with him. Now, both times he addresses them with the same word. Uh, Verse 13, the first part, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, verse 14, because you know him who is from the beginning. Who is the one who's from the beginning? Well, this is a reminder. Of course, it's Christ. But it's speaking of of God. He's, remember, he's speaking to those who are more mature. He's speaking of God who is the immutable one, the eternal God, the, the creator, and he who was in existence before creation. And he's speaking to them comfort that, look, this is, this is God. You Remember this, you who are more mature. This is God who does not change no matter what's going on in your life as, as we all change in advancing years. I went to the um, eye doctor recently, and he, he said this to me. He did, did the exam, you know, the, you've, you've all done it, and... Uh, he said, well, your eyes are actually a little bit better than they were three years ago or whenever, whenever I saw him last. And my response to him was, well, I can assure you that that's the only part of my body that is better <laughs> than it was three years ago. I think I was probably misdiagnosed three years ago, too, so they... I, I, so, but that's where, that's where we are. That's just the way it is. And so he's giving comfort, saying, look, yeah, things change here on earth, but God stays the same. Take comfort in this. So as, as time hurries in all generations, God's people can find refuge in him who is from everlasting to everlasting. John Stott says about this group that he's addressing, they are already consciously living in eternity. Isn't that a great term? In other words, instead of, <clears throat> instead of bemoaning that, oh man, I, you know, everything's getting worse here. Instead of that, Eternity is becoming brighter and brighter and more real to them. 
And so that's what he speaks of here. I've had the privilege of knowing many who in their later years of life that were so mature in Christ. Let me tell you about one of those. Uh, She's been with the Lord many years. She was in a previous church that I served. Her her name was Mona Bailey. And I was a young 28-year-old pastor of this this church that was the biggest one in the town we lived in. And and I used to go visit Mona uh, in her little efficiency apartment. And when I first got to know her, she, she had this big photo album right by her well-worn rocking chair. And, you know, just to try to get to know her, I said, well, what's, uh, what's that, Mona? And uh, she said, oh, that's the first thing I do every morning. And so she showed it to me. And it wasn't family pictures, but it was pictures of missionaries all over the world. And so every morning, she would get up. She got up real early, and she'd get her, you know, cup of coffee, and she would sit there, and she would literally pray around the world, page after page. And then she she said, oh, I want you to see the front page of this too. So the very first page, it had the picture of what to her was the big three, not the Trinity, the, another, another, another big three. It had a picture of, you know, this was a while back, so you understand, of Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell and me. And she said, I pray for you every morning. And then before I would leave, uh, she, she, would, she would pray. She had this well-worn Bible, used up. You know, most people would have gotten a new one by now. She didn't have any theological education, but she knew, she knew the word. And when she would pray... Heaven opened up. I love to hear her pray. It was transforming. There have been many times I've had the privilege of standing by a, a deathbed or visiting somebody in, in a hospital who was what he's describing here, where I've come away so much more encouraged than I ever encouraged them because of how very real their faith was and what a comfort that was to me. He goes on then and speaks about the young men, verse 13 and 14 again. And this is actually where most believers are, so we'd say young men and women. Those who are in the daily battle of the the Christian life, Uh, He says this in in verse 13, we'd say 13b, so kind of in the middle. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, 
I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So here he's saying he's already established you, you are forgiven, you have knowledge of God, and then he speaks to, to those who are still in the, the, the daily battles. They, they're maturing, but they wouldn't be at that point of being called the fathers that he's just spoken to. And here's what he tells them. And, and I'm sure they didn't really feel this way, and that's why he stated the obvious. He says, you have overcome the evil one. So what's that mean? Because I'm, I'm sure that for most, for most of us, we don't feel like we've overcome the evil one. We feel like he's always attacking us, and we're in this big battle with him that, that only God can fight. So they're struggling every day against sin, but there is some sense that they've already overcome the evil one, and they and we need the reminder that Christ is in them, and Christ said this later in 1 John through uh, this book. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the reminder. We're going to get to that a couple of chapters away. So there's, there's at least two aspects of the war that we're in all the time. When you come to Christ, that's when you have overcome the evil one. And you're saying, but wait a minute. It, you know, I feel like I'm still scrapping with that. But he's reminding them, no, no. You come to Christ, and at, at, at that point, there is a definite break with sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about justification. And it says it's an act of, of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins. There it is. John's already said that. And accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So that's the first aspect that we come to Christ and then we are no longer a slave to sin because Christ has overcome that. Sin no longer owns us. In other words, we don't have to sin any longer. But then there is that second aspect of this, and that is the daily battle against sin. It's the experiencing forgiveness for past sin and seeking deliverance from the present power of sin in our lives. He says, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Don't miss that. The word of God abides 
in you. Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Ephesians 6.17 speaks of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So that's how you stay in the war. With a weapon, with a sword that cannot be defeated. And that's what he's talking about when he says the word of God abides in you. So let me give you two applications. One is that word of God abiding in us is our strength. It's not just what you hear here on Sunday. If this is all you're getting, I'll just tell you, it's not enough. It's just not enough. You need to read God's word. If you're not already doing it. Uh, we mentioned the SAPC reading challenge. There's, there's still the cards in our various entryways. That should be the very basis, just systematically reading through. If you can't get them both done in a day, do one of them and spread out the reading challenge, but be in God's word on a regular basis. Devour it. Study it, memorize it, use it in your prayers. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, if you, if you cut him, he would bleed scripture. I don't know what you would see if you cut me, but I wish that that would be what I and we would be known for. Abiding in the word so deeply that it's so through us that that's what would come out. And then here's what we must all know, whether you're new to the faith or a long time in the faith, our sins are forgiven in Christ. That's where he started. And then Satan does not win. Christ does. And therefore, because Christ dwells in us, we have overcome the evil one. Not in our own strength, but because of Christ, the word dwelling in us. And then finally, for those who are trusting in Christ alone for eternal life, we have a relationship with the Father that can never be severed. It can never be broken because he's the one holding on to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful word. Will you give us hearts that see the beauty in it so that we long to be in it, to abide in it, 
and to celebrate that in Christ we know you and in Christ we are forgiven and have overcome the evil one. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.